0: Good morning and happy Sabbath. Am I on upstairs? Is everything coming through okay? I have two microphones on this morning. One for you guys and one to share with the rest of the world. I was very thankful to meet a lot of you uh, yesterday. Can someone set this up for me while I'm talking? Plug this in. Thanks, Chris. I was very thankful to meet a lot of you uh, yesterday, and it's good for me to be back home, because this is, of course, where I graduated from school, so I'm very thankful to be back at Weimar. It holds a very special place in my heart, and it was interesting, because many of you uh, know me, but I don't really know many of you, so that's kind of my dilemma. Many of you would walk by and say, hi, Tim, and I'd say, hi. <laughs> not really remembering who you are, sorry, so... So forgive me if I don't remember uh, who you are. It's been many years. I was very impressed with Pastor McIntosh. He remembered me after, I think, almost 12 years we've seen each other. It's been a long, long, long time. We met at a colleague's house of mine, uh Neil Nedley, and he remembered, I think it was 1998 when I last saw him, or 1999. I was very, very impressed and thankful that he did remember. One of the things that... Uh, many of you have asked me, and I decided to kind of uh, modify my presentation just slightly. Uh, you asked where I'm from. Now that's often a loaded question. <laughs> and so I answer just most of you as I normally would. I said, well, I'm I'm from Seattle. Um, uh-oh, something's not working here. Could someone who initially plugged in the video help me out? Uh, yeah, our projector is off. Yeah, that's that's why. So anyway, many of you asked me where I'm from, which is kind of a loaded question because I say Seattle, and I noticed that you know, many of you aren't really happy with that answer. You're not really wanting to know where I'm from, But really how I got my last name, which is Reisenberger. And so I know many of you look at me and of course think, oh, of course his last name must be Reisenberger. So I decided to put a little uh, slideshow in with my family in it, just to give you an idea of where I'm from, so to speak. Before we do that, as uh, we're getting set up, I would like to ask the Lord uh, to be with us before we begin. Please bow your heads, I will kneel. Loving Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be here on your Sabbath day, and I ask that you would abide with us, Lord. I pray that I would be hidden, and that Jesus would be seen, and that everyone in this room uh, may be forever changed by what you will do, not only this morning, but throughout this conference. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, can we turn the lights down? Is that possible? I don't know if everyone can see that. So this is a member of my family. Who do you think it is? No, it's my grandma. That's a good guess. I'm going to tell grandma you said she was my mom. So that's my grandma. Yes, that's true. We are related. I cannot deny it. So that's my grandmother. And my grandmother was the third Seventh-day Adventist in my family. Uh, My father was first. I was next. And it was very amazing because... Grandma became a Seventh-day Adventist before Grandpa did. I visited Grandma and Grandpa every summer. And when I became an Adventist, I would study every summer with Grandma and Grandpa. And we would kind of go back and forth. And I just asked them to do one thing. I said, Grandma and Grandpa, you don't have to believe me. Just pray and study the Bible together every day. Just make that, make that commitment. And they said, Tim, we will promise you that. And you know, they have not missed in over 15 years. They kept that promise. And when Grandma became an Adventist, Grandpa didn't want her to go to church. So he said, no, you can't go to church. You can worship at home, but um, this going to church thing is just kind of crazy. And eventually, to make a long story short, he ended up going with her at the end of a few months. So she was very persistent and and didn't give up. The next person is Grandpa. Grandpa. And he actually just recently passed away in October, and I was very thankful because the last thing we saw of him was there was a Bible, actually, right near his chair, and he had been reading that the night before he passed away. Now, he had never opened that particular Bible. He had opened the Bible before, but he had never become a baptized Seventh-day Adventist or made a strong profession of religion. Uh, But I don't know what happened in those last moments, but he died just like that in his sleep. His cardiologist said he was healthy as a horse. He had no pain. He had no disabilities. He just went. Uh, Certainly a a great way to go for most of us, and my prayer is that he went in Christ in those final moments. It was very interesting. In the last three weeks, he changed quite significantly in his philosophy. Uh, Many of you know I do a mission trip every month, and his philosophy was, Tim, well, you should work more So you can give money to the mission field instead of going and doing it every month. I said, well, I don't know about that. I think I'm going to keep doing it every month. And near the end, I actually shared some letters with him from the weeks of prayers I had just recently done, one in Sweden and one in India. And I shared those letters, and he read through all of them. And he said, these are the most beautiful things I have ever seen. He said, you should do mission work full time. (laughs) (laughs) So, In the last three weeks of his life, the Lord made some significant changes. He actually quit drinking as well. He used to drink kind of socially. Uh, And so I'm confident that the Lord did something in those last few moments. This is my mom. And she is not yet an Adventist. But she actually came to Weimar, interestingly enough. She uh, was a part of my family that disowned me when I became a Christian and didn't speak to me for about three years and I was very pleased that uh, last uh, Thanksgiving she actually came as a patient to Newstart. And she, I think, dropped her cholesterol like 90 points. It was amazing. And uh, had some wonderful uh, spiritual blessings uh, from Viola Kaiser, who is the chaplain here. This is my dad. He's the first Adventist. He became an Adventist because someone invited my father and I to a revelation seminar. So invite your friends to those evangelistic campaigns. Invite... Your neighbors, uh, you never know what will happen. He became an Adventist first. Uh, I was introduced to the Adventist church when I was a teenager, but I did not become an Adventist until many years later. This is my sister. She recently became an Adventist, praise the Lord. She was baptized last year at Auburn Camp Meeting. And the next day, she flew out with me on my next mission trip. I went to give a Bible camp in Virginia. There were 80 campers. She gave her testimony, and of the 80 campers, 39 came forward for baptism. This is my brother, who's not yet an Adventist, but still praying for him. Uh, He basically never has really made a profession of religion, but uh, the last time I talked with him in Southern California, he was really considering uh, God, and I think that's because he's become a father. Uh, This is his wife, and here's another interesting twist with my family. These are his uh, two sons. Don't they look alike? (laughs) But as you can probably figure out, there's a a blend of two races in my family, and sometimes the genetics play a little game with us. Uh, Okay. All right. What I'm going to share with you is something that happened to me in the mission field, and I want to share a picture, first of all, of the landscape of where we were. Does anyone know where this country is? Oh, wait a minute, can't see anything. (laughs) Let me try this again. Is it there? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's see. Okay, better. Okay, does anyone know where this country is? Probably not. Doesn't show any. Now, how did how did you know it was Peru? Uh aha, maybe these are friends that went with me. Yes, this is Peru. This is very true. (laughs) But this isn't like typical Peru. This is like middle of nowhere Peru. Uh, We were in northern Peru near Chiclayo. I don't know. Have anyone been to Peru or South America before? A few of you. So I was invited by a friend of mine who is a dentist to go with about 30 uh, different church members on a mission trip. And I was asked uh, to do medical work because I was the only physician there. Uh, But I noticed that a lot of our trips were really, really kind of frontier type of work. We went off in the middle of nowhere uh, one day. I'd say we went three hours basically just seeing this uh, to a village that had no running water at all. Well, I take that back. They had running water for like an hour a day, and that's about it. Uh, And they had very little electricity, very little uh, as far as any appliances or technology and so we just ran clinic and this is how we ran clinic this is my office and basically just not even a roof I suppose just kind of partitioning and as far as equipment not not really a whole lot of equipment basically I got my water bottle there and get people to have some water I have a stethoscope and essentially I would just try to teach them the principles of health this is a man and his wife, and he had had abdominal pain for I don't know how many years. So very difficult to really um, share with someone concretely uh, what to do since there's no real you know, diagnostic stuff that I could use, no x-rays, no labs. Uh, but you know, you'd know, you be amazed on what just simple information uh, can do for people. Uh, I'd say about 90% of illness, as we know, uh, can be, I think, cured and prevented just with simple Eight Natural Remedies. Many times, though, all I could really do for people is just point them to God. And often I would have a chance to pray with my patients. And I believe that God blesses. He understands that if you don't have resources, I believe that he enjoys that even more because it allows him to work. Because when there's lots of technology and lots of medicines and lots of things and lots of people there's the tendency to say, well, that's what cured them. But ultimately, we all know that the good Lord is the great physician. And without Him, uh, all of our efforts are in vain. This is actually uh, some of the other clinics that were set up. But I basically saw patients, I think I saw several hundred patients during my few days there in Peru. And it was very difficult to pull myself away. Uh, I don't know if you can see, there's actually... Uh, an area that's actually a little bit more private than most of the places. That's actually the bathroom. And that's about the only place I felt I could get some privacy. So when I went to go to the bathroom, though, uh I don't know if any of you have noticed in the United States, there's kind of a law where you don't talk to each other in the bathroom if you're a guy. I don't know if you've noticed that. Just, just FYI, if you're a guy, just don't talk to anyone. If you're at the stall, don't look over to the side. Just look straight forward. It's not really... Uh, considered appropriate in our culture to do that. However, if you're a girl, you can talk all the time. It's probably considered rude if you don't talk to the, someone in the, <laughs> the stall next to you. But I can tell you in Peru, it's a little bit different because I would go and I'd be going to the bathroom and someone would come up right next to me and say, doctor, una pregunta. <laughs> they start asking me questions. I say, well, wow, well, why don't you wait till I get back to the clinic and you can get back in line and wait your turn. So, because people would try to cut you know, because they would meet me in the bathroom and ask their question there. So I didn't really get a whole lot of time alone. One of the things I noticed, though, near the end of my clinic is that all the time there was a, a mom with her kids kind of in the background. They never really came forward at any time, but I could hear them kind of talking. And the daughter would say to her mom, well, I'm not that serious. I'm I'm not that severe, you know, there are other people who have more uh, health problems than me. Uh, They should go first. And the mom kept trying to get her to go forward, oh, no, she wouldn't, she was, oh, I'm embarrassed. And it was very, very interesting. And it was very uh, intriguing to me because most of the people were clamoring to come forward. They were wanting to be first, they were wanting to cut, they would, you know, come to the bathroom if need be to get their question answered first. But she was very, very different from the rest of them. And what I'm going to share is quite possibly the greatest lesson I've learned in my entire life um, from a little girl in Peru. So eventually, her mom kind of puts her hands on her shoulders and kind of pushes her toward the front of the line. And there she ends up uh, next to me. And I think I have a picture of her. That's her right there. And her name is Helen, and basically, Her complaint was this. I said, well, I'm I'm Tim Riesenberger. What's your problem? Uh, What's going on? She said, well, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the problem is. I just know that I can't play with the other kids like I normally would. Oh, oh, by the way, she's in the yellow. Her sister is in the colored shirt. And I feel like sometimes uh, my heart feels like it's racing. It's thumping. And of course, here I am. This is a healthy 15-year-old girl, and I'm just kind of laughing to myself. So I get my stethoscope, and as I'm trying to listen to her, heart, I say, well, maybe it's some boy that's causing this. <laughs> but when I listen to her heart, I hear the worst sound that I have ever heard in my life. And, you know, I think she could kind of tell that there was a problem because as I was listening to her heart, she started crying as she looked at me because I think all the color kind of just drained out of my face. And then all the other members of our mission team, they're like, let me listen, let me listen, let me listen. Because they were always wanting to learn uh, different medical things from me, especially the, there were several people that were pre-med and as well as nursing. And I just listened and listened and listened because I heard the loudest what we call murmur that I've ever heard in my life. A very, very abnormal uh, sounding heart. And I would have her sit down, I'd have her stand up, I'd put her through all the different maneuvers that we would do as physicians to localize where the murmur is coming from. And to make a long story short, uh, she had a large hole through the middle of her heart in the uh, interventricular septum, which is basically a wall that separates two of the chambers of your heart. Now, normally, that wall is there so that the right side of the heart pumps blood to the lungs, and it gets oxygen, and then it returns from the lungs to the left side of the heart, and then it goes out to the rest of the body. Now the problem is is when you have a big hole in your heart, the blood from the left side will shunt over to the right side. So the blood that's already oxygenated will get oxygenated again. Not a big problem, right? The problem though is that after years of that happening, the pressures on the right side of the heart overcome the left side, and so you get shunting from the right to the left. It's called Eisenmenger's complex for those of you who are budding medical students and stuff like that, but you don't need to know that. Uh, so. What happens if your blood goes from the right heart to the left heart? Can you see what the problem would be with that? What would what would be the problem? You don't get any oxygen. So this girl was not getting any oxygen anymore. And she'd have various spells. She'd be short of breath. She'd have to sit down. She'd feel like her chest was hurting or going to explode. And she really couldn't f- tell what was really wrong. Uh, and that's why she finally came to me. The problem was is that she would ask me and say, well, okay, um, do I need to drink more water? I said, no, that's not going to work. Well, aren't you going to give me a cabbage poultice like these other people? No, we're not going to do that either. And well, what are you going to give me? I said, there's nothing I can do for you. And she was rather sad. And I said, really, you, you probably need a new heart. You probably need a to talk to a cardiologist or a cardiothoracic surgeon and you probably will only find those in the capital of Peru in Lima and they're the only ones that can help you. Uh, I, I can't help you. And so she started crying and she was a little concerned and tried to figure out what she was going to do and she said, well, I've never left my village before and I said, well, I'll try to get help from friends of mine if possible in the States see if they can maybe bring you over or send some funds or something. And she said, okay. And interestingly enough, though, uh, I believe that there are many lessons that I learned from her. Because as I looked into Helen's eyes and realized that she needed a new heart, I realized God was speaking to me and telling me the same thing. And let me share with you um, how God began Uh, to speak with me. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12, verse 32. John chapter 12, verse 32. It's a very famous passage, and perhaps many of you know it uh, by heart. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, shall what? Draw all people to myself. Jesus is drawing everyone to himself, whether or not they go to church, whether or not they... Read the Bible, whether or not they're Adventists, non-Adventist, Christian, non-Christian, Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, Shinto, Dao, is from Islam, anything. God is drawing all people uh, to Himself. And the other important truth I realize is in Luke 19:10, and you can take a look there, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And again, a very simple, famous verse. You probably can answer without even looking it up. For the Son of Man is come to seek. And to save, what? That which was lost. Uh, Who is seeking? God. God is seeking for you. And that is the first principle that I realize is that, now what are the chances of me seeing this girl out in the middle of nowhere in Peru? Now see, I, I came from Seattle, from zillions of miles away, out in the middle of nowhere to see her. And to meet with her and to diagnose the condition that she had. Who do you think orchestrated all that? That was God. And I want you to know that no matter how far away you seem from God, He is seeking for you. And He is making very detailed plans to send you light, hope, and salvation. That light may come in the form of a person, it may come in the form of a book. It may come in the form of a television show. I don't know. But God is seeking for you and I every day. And God sent me that day to Helen. There is another concept, though. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Because you see, although I came to Helen and the opportunity was there, was there a chance that I could miss her? Well, there's a quite a big chance. Did she come up to talk to me initially? No, she didn't. She could have stayed at the outskirts forever. Because believe you me, I didn't even get a chance to see half of the people that wanted to be seen. And so it would be very easy to miss her. But Jesus says he stands at the door. What does he do? He knocks. And then what comes after that? Yes, if anyone hears my voice, and what else? You had to open the door. So Helen had to actually hear that God was calling her to respond to the offers of medical help. And you and I have the same response. One of my favorite books is actually uh, another favorite of the chief librarian in the Library of Congress. Has anyone been to the Library of Congress? What's so special about the Library of Congress? Yes, that's right. It has every published book. And did you know that the chief librarian there, his favorite commentary on the life of Christ, do you know what it is? It's the Desire of Ages. Yes, that's right. When you get a chance, you can read Desire of Ages, page 479. And it starts with, Jesus knows us individually. Uh, Go to that passage sometime during today as you're meditating about these concepts. And it basically tells you that God knows the house you live in. He knows the name of each occupant. And at times he will send one of his servants to you to bring one of his lost sheep home. So I want you to know that no matter how remote you feel away from God, no matter how lost you feel right now, you're not as remote as Helen was out in the middle of Nowheresville in Peru. But God was able to find Helen. And if he was able to find Helen, I believe that he's able to find you and I as well. One of the interesting things was is uh, when she was at the edge of the crowd, the reason why she didn't come forward... Do you know why she didn't come forward? There were several things that she said to her mom. Yeah, exactly. She was embarrassed, or there's others more serious than me, or, you know, uh, well, there's so many people to be seen, and things like that. Uh Various things have to happen in order for us to respond to God's mercy. And one of those is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Again, Very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard that, He said unto them, Those that are what? Whole. Do not need a physician, but those that are sick. But go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call who? The righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of the first fundamental things that has to happen for our lives to change, we have to feel our what? Our need, right? Those that are whole don't need who? They don't need the doctor. And God didn't call the righteous, but who? Sinners to repentance. Now, how many of us is whole? None, right? The Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. Fairly graphic passage, but I believe it's that way for a reason. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6. This describes our spiritual condition. By nature, all of us are children of wrath, Ephesians says. And Isaiah, I think, puts it even more strongly. From the sole of the foot... Even to where? The head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and what? Putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Paints quite a picture there, doesn't it? Kind of a stinky picture, maybe. I can tell you that last night, um, someone had a sore, uh, and they called me uh, to evaluate it, see if... Perhaps they had, had a splinter there, in it, and that's what was causing the pain. It was a small sore, but just that little sore prevented this person from even walking normally. Now, this is not a description of a small sore. This says the whole body is just one big mass of infection, putrefying. That's kind of a bad word, isn't it? Putrefying. So we have to feel our need before we can get help from God. Now, interestingly enough, did did Helen know what was wrong with her before she talked to me? No. Now, I think this is a very important concept. Just because she didn't know, did that change the fact that there was a big hole in her heart? No. You know, you've heard the saying, what you don't know, what? Can't hurt you. But I tell you right now, what you don't know will probably kill you. Whether or not you feel your need of Christ does not change the fact that you do. Whether or not you believe that there is something wrong does not change the fact that there's something very, very amiss in your life, in all of our lives. Now, the nice thing is, is that God in his mercy, when there's something wrong with us, allows us to feel symptoms, right? In medicine, there are some things that don't have any symptoms, right? High blood pressure, it's called the silent killer because there's no symptoms. Now, thankfully, Helen had a few of what? She had a few symptoms. Uh, She had shortness of breath. She had chest pain. She had palpitations. uh, She had easy fatigue. She had a number of things that told her, you know, she wasn't a normal kid anymore. Things had changed. I believe that God in His mercy does the same thing for every one of us, for me included. Allows us to feel a symptom that something is missing, that something is wrong in our lives. Perhaps it's a habit. You just haven't been able to vanquish, haven't been able to overcome. Perhaps it's this emptiness when you sit at home in the quiet and all the music has stopped and all the hustle and bustle, and you feel very, very meaningless. Perhaps it is feelings of guilt. Perhaps uh, you don't feel that life is worth living at times. Perhaps you feel like you don't have purpose. I don't know what you feel, but I can tell you that God was speaking to me at that moment through the eyes of a little girl in Peru, making me feel my need as well as her. And I just pray that if you feel those symptoms, if you seem to recognize that something is wrong, realize that that is God speaking to your heart and that He wants to do the same thing for you as for Helen. Now, the the very amazing thing, I believe, is this picture right here. Because this picture was taken after I told her the bad news. But before anything was done. I mean, she's still there in her village. You know, there's no heart transplant yet. But does she look happy or sad? She looks happy, doesn't she? Now, why do you suppose someone would be happy after receiving such devastating news? Ah, she knows what? At last she knows what is wrong, right? She's not busy wandering and aimlessly wondering what's going on. She at last knows that there is a reason for why she's feeling empty and hurting and tired and weary. And I believe that there are many of us now in this room that will feel the same. And I would challenge each one of you to listen very carefully as I share uh, probably the most important lessons now that I learned from Helen. She's happy because she knows what's wrong at last, but that's not all that has to happen, right? I think that the new birth experience is much like seeing patients, much like my work in the ER is the work of conversion, the Holy Spirit uh, on the human heart. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who what? Now, were these the Gentiles? No, they were Jews, right? And were they the Pharisees? No. Were they the people that rejected Christ? No. It says those Jews who, what? Believed Believed on who? So who is he talking to? He's talking to us, right? Because I assume every one of you is here at Western Youth Conference because you believe in Jesus, right? You're at least some form of Christian, uh, I believe, or at least interested. So Jesus here in this message is talking to people who believe, right? So this is the message that he is speaking to us. Right now. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? Shall set you free. Now they didn't like that. Now why didn't they like that? They said, they answered him, We are Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? And what was Jesus' response? Jesus answered him, Verily, verily. I like that. You know, Jesus, when he wants to get your attention, he uses the two verilies. He repeats it twice. He said, I am assuredly saying this to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever what? Commiteth sin is? That's pretty plain, isn't it? There's no confusion whose side you're on. Jesus said, whosoever commits what? Sin is the slave of sin. If you and I are committing sin in our lives, that's a symptom. Praise the Lord for a symptom. You feel your need. And hopefully when you do feel that need, you go for the cure as well. Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth what? Not in the house forever. Now, if it says the servant abideth not in the house forever, what does that imply? That he abides for a time, right? I'm very thankful that when we commit sin, we're not immediately extinguished in this life. Because Jesus, by his sacrifice, not only purchases salvation for the righteous, but he purchases time, even for the wicked, doesn't he? Jesus allows us a moment of probation, a window in time to decide which side we will end up on. He says, the servant abideth not in the house forever. In other words, if you do not come to Jesus and you do not allow Him to cure you of your incurable cancer, which is called sin, which infects all of us, you will not abide forever. You will eventually be lost. But who abides forever? But the Son abides forever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be what? shall be free indeed. Isn't that a very clear passage? Jesus is speaking to Christians, so to speak, which is us, he said, if you commit sin, you're the servant of sin and you will not live forever. You are living in a window of time, a little moment between life and death. And I've purchased that window for you to be able to be healed. Now, very interestingly enough, when Jesus said this to the Jews, they had a number of options. They could say, yes, it's true. Or how did they respond in the passage? Are we slaves No. We've never been in bondage to any man. They had a number of options on how to respond, and so did Helen, right? Oftentimes, when I'm in the ER and I give someone a diagnosis, they say, Well, Dr. Riesenberger, I think I want a second what? (laughs) I think I want a second opinion. Could not Helen have said that? Certainly she could have. But that's the beauty of children, isn't it? They are dependent, they are humble. They accept what you have to say. Helen didn't go to medical school for four years. She didn't have that education, and so she wasn't going to ask that. Now, when I trained for residency, I trained at Stanford University, which is an unfortunate place to practice in some ways because the average level of education of my patients was 17. Now, grade 17 would mean they finished high school, they finished college, and they've already had a year of postgraduate training. That's the average level of education. So many times the patients would come in and say, Dr. Riesenberger, I already know what's wrong. I've already looked this up, what? Online. That's right. And what I need you to do for me is write me this and this and this. I said, well, you don't need me. See ya. No, I wouldn't say that. But they of course would want to use my DEA and my license number to write them their prescriptions or whatever interventions they desired. Oftentimes we are the same with God. We pretend to prescribe for ourselves and to put on him our demands and what we want to be done. But in order to be saved, of course, you have to accept the diagnosis of the true physician. And not only accept it, what else did Helen have to do? I mean, what if she said, okay, I got a big hole in my heart, and she just drank some more water and changed her diet and did all the things we recommended in our health lectures while we were there? What happened to her? she'd probably die. That's correct. Because what did I tell her to do? That's right. She needed to leave her village and go to the capital. I mean, that's quite an excursion for someone who's never left their village, right? She had to not only accept the diagnosis, but follow the treatment, right? I had a patient, actually, that came into the ER, and they had this little red spot on their middle finger. And I asked them, I said, well, what's going on? I said, well, my, my finger is hurting, and I think it's infected. And she pointed it out to me, and said, yeah, there's a very early little infection there. I said, well, how did you get this? Well, I don't know. I said, what were you doing last night? Well, I was I uh, passed out. I said, well, how did you pass out? Well, I was drinking and using some methamphetamine and speed and stuff like that. I said, oh, okay. And so I, I kind of told her that she had what's called cellulitis, or an early infection, I gave her a dose of antibiotics there and I gave her a prescription and I told her that you have to quit smoking, you have to quit the methamphetamine, stop drinking because all those suppress the immune system and you need to come back if it gets worse right away. Now she did come back, but she came back a week later and her entire finger was encased in pus. And she didn't come and see me. She saw my physician assistant, and I supervised the physician assistant. So they said, "Tim, you got to look at this woman's finger." She's like, "This, this," and I'm like, "Is she? Is her name this?" And she's like, "Yes." I'm like, "I saw her." She's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Oh yeah." So I asked the physician assistant. I said, "Did she fill the prescription?" "No." "Did she quit smoking?" "No." "Is she still using methamphetamine? Just use it yesterday?" "She's still drinking?" "Yes." I'm like. Okay. So I walked in there. I said, hi, I'm Dr. Eisenberger. I'm uh asked to see you by my physician assistant. Oh, what's going on? Oh, you know, I was seen a week ago, and, you know, the doctor didn't do anything for me. And Well, she didn't recognize that it. it was me. It was very interesting. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I didn't do anything. It was horrible. And I said, oh, really? Well, your finger looks quite infected there. Oh, yeah, it looked just like this a week ago. I said, oh, really? Okay. Um, Well, what did the doctor say? Well, he said that I needed to take some antibiotics. I said, oh, did you fill that prescription? Well, it was snowing outside, and I couldn't get out. Oh, okay. Well, did the doctor recommend that you do anything else? Well, yeah, he did say that I needed to quit smoking. Did you? No, I didn't quit smoking. Uh, Anything else, he said? Well, yeah, he said i had to quit the drugs and quit the drinking. When did you last use those? Well, last night. And I said, well, you know, actually, I'm the one who saw you last week. And I can tell you, your finger did not look like that before. Uh... And the reason why it's worse is because you didn't fill the antibiotics and you didn't quit smoking and you didn't quit drinking and didn't quit using the drugs. Now, she had to go to the operating room to have her finger saved. They had to lance all that pus out and drain it and wash it all out. Now, the reason she didn't get better is why? She didn't follow the treatment. And God gives you the treatment for your soul. <laughs> And that's to be born again. That's to change the entire radical change of your life, everything about you. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything's gone. You have to let go of everything old. You have to follow the prescription of the great physician in order to be saved. Now, many people do accept the diagnosis, like this lady, but they don't follow the treatment. But Helen had to do that. She had to leave her village and go and get help. Now, the amazing thing is, do you think she had any money to do all this? No. No. I mean, she didn't have money probably even to leave her village, let alone go to Lima. And that is the amazing thing, is that when you look at salvation, it is the same thing as when you go to see the doctor. When the doctor gives you a diagnosis and you accept the treatment. There are a number of things that have to happen. Now, does the doctor give you a prescription? Yes, right? Because can you give yourself a prescription? I'll give you an example. Those of you are watching the fire engine going by and the ambulance probably saw me take off running after them. Uh, that's only because I feel an obligation as an emergency room physician. Uh, it was a gentleman who fell and fractured his patella, which is the kneecap. And uh, he was all right, but then I was followed up again. Uh, they asked me if it was okay for him to take some Motrin and Advil. And for, that, for some reason, actually, it's not a good idea because of his kidneys. Also, he's 92. So I made a recommendation that he get some Vicodin. Now, can they just go down to the store and buy some Vicodin? No, they can't do that. Who has to do that? I do. I would have to call that in or uh, write it out for them so they get a prescription. And that's the same thing with God. Think about it. When you see the doctor... The doctor writes you the prescription because why? Because you can't. He orders an x-ray for you because you can't. But once he writes you that prescription, does he go to the pharmacy and fill it for you? Does he come to your house four times a day and put it in your mouth? No. Now, why doesn't he do that? Because you can do that. That's why. In the chapter in Desire of Ages, as mentioned again, You can look at Lazarus come forth. That's the name of the chapter. And it's made very clear that what human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. So what is your part in the role of salvation? What you can't do for yourself, who's going to do for you? God. You can't change your thoughts. You can't change your motives. You can't change your heart, right? You can't of yourself do any good thing, correct? But when God asks you, to have your devotions every day? Does the Bible levitate up from your desk and come over and sit itself in front of you? That's never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. I don't know. But that hasn't happened to me. When God says to pray, He doesn't like lift you off the bed and put you onto your knees and have you pray. He doesn't even keep you awake while you're praying. Have you noticed that? Some of you fall asleep. Raise your hand. No, 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 don't raise your hand. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. But He will not do what you can do for yourself. And what is the balance there? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Probably a, a passage that's memorized for most of you. Philippians 12, Philippians 2, sorry, chapter tw- uh, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now, if you just stop there, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is who? God that works where? In you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Isn't that amazing? So how do we do it? We work out what he works in. God will place the power and the desire to do what is right in your heart. But who has the decision from there? It is you. God is not going to force you to do what is right. Just as I prescribe something for a patient, you have a decision there, don't you? You have a decision to accept my diagnosis or not. You have a decision to accept the treatment plan or not. And you also have a decision at any moment to stop cooperating with the treatment plan. You can stop taking the medicines at any time. I won't make you, and I won't come over to your house and make you take them. And neither will God. Finishing up... With the rest of this, I'm going to close and and tell you what actually happened to Helen because I know you're all wondering. This is actually a little farewell. And again, Helen's very happy. I don't know if you can see her. You probably can't. Uh, But she's actually right here. And that's her sister. And they were saying farewell all the way to the bus. We were getting on the bus. That's actually my head. And you can see Helen there waving with her sister. And amazingly enough, even out the window... She actually jumped up and kissed me on the cheek right before I left. She said, thank you. Thank you so much. But I want to know, let you know that the most fundamental truth in all of this comes at the end of what happens to Helen. Because, as you know, she didn't have any money. So I came back. And I came back to the States and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with Helen. So I just kind of forgot about that for a little while. And every time when I go to work, they always ask me, Well, Riesenberger, where did you go this month? They're always interested in uh, wherever I go on my trips. And so I, I shared kind of the story with various people there in the ER that were sitting around of where I went and the story about Helen. And the next day, one of the ER techs, now not a doctor, not a nurse, this is a tech who probably makes about $10, $13 bucks an hour. She brought an envelope with $1,000 cash. And she said, I want you to give this to Helen. She's not a Christian. She's not an Adventist. She doesn't know me that well. I mean, she works with me and stuff like that, but that's about it. And I just realized what the most important truth of this whole story is, and I hope that you never forget it. As I took that $1,000 and I sent it to Helen, and not only did she get all of her medical treatment, and she's fully fine, she's totally recovered, but she had enough money left over to go to our Adventist Academy. She was baptized two weeks after I saw her, And she went with the extra money and is now, to my knowledge, attending our Adventist Academy. Now, the most important truth I want you to get from this was that did I pay for Helen? Did Helen pay for Helen? You know, I think the circumstances in which it happened was who paid for Helen, do you think? God paid for Helen. And that's the last truth. Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. Because the good news is that When the great physician gives us the diagnosis that we are lost and we need a new heart, the good news is the treatment, what does it cost us? It's free. That's correct. Salvation is a free gift offered to you and I today. But I want you to know that although it is free for us, it does cost something. And it costs someone This is a question that Isaac put to his father. What did he say? Here's the fire. Here's the wood. But what? Where's the offering? And what did Abraham say? God will provide what? Himself. Now think about that. God will provide who? Himself. You see, because although our salvation is free to every one of us, it is very expensive to God because it costs him himself. And that's where the illustration fails. God provided for Helen out of the abundance of his bounty by placing uh, in the heart of a young girl, a tech in the ER, to give her a $1,000. But you see, he can't just take a $1,000 or even a million dollars or a billion dollars to pay for you and I. It costs him himself his own life. And I want you to understand that if you forget everything in this story about being converted, that you would remember that although the salvation is free for you, it costs God himself to pay to bring you back home. I pray that today you would meditate on the story of Helen and that you would think very carefully and just ask yourself if you feel that weariness in your heart, that emptiness. Perhaps there's a hole in your heart today. And I pray that As you feel your need, that you, like Helen, would follow the steps to be saved and know that God loves you so much that he gave himself for you. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for showing me that I needed a new heart. By showing me, through the eyes of a little girl in Peru, my need for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for making it so clear to me, and I pray that it is crystal clear to everyone here in this room that if we have symptoms of sin, Lord, that we would know that these are just the tip of the iceberg of a deeper problem, and that we would come to you as the great physician, that we would accept your diagnosis, and that we would not only accept your treatment plan, but follow it with all of our hearts. Lord, thank you that we do not have to change our own hearts. We don't have to change our own thoughts because we cannot, Lord. But you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you most of all, Lord, that though it is free for us, that it costs you everything to save our souls. And Lord, for that we are very grateful. I pray right now that if there is anyone within the sound of my voice who wants that new heart, that you would hear their cry. Lord, I I don't want them to raise their hand or come to the front. You know who they are, Lord. And I ask right now, You would do for them what they cannot do for themselves and give them the assurance that You will cure them just as You cured Helen and just as You cured me. Lord, thank You so much in Jesus' name.